Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. I think the biggest story of the week is going to be the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin, passing at the age of 76. She was surrounded by her family in Detroit. She died from pancreatic cancer. There are few people in the world that have such a huge impact on music and culture, the world in general. And, you know, she has tons of hits. Respect, one of the top hits that she had, the one that vaulted her into superstardom. This right here, this is your favorite song, Miranda. One of my favorites, Freeway of Love. This is such a fun song. A lot of her music was really serious. And uh, this is just something really bouncy and kind of dancey. Yeah, totally. But she had that, uh, you know, that gospel rooted voice. And and you really felt the authenticity in her music and her lyrics and, and just everything that she did. Uh, she's really amazing. So with that, we're going to speak to Mo Kelly. He's a Los Angeles radio host. He was a music industry veteran. He worked for the Grammys for a span of time, and he actually got a chance to meet her. So he's coming on. We're going to talk about the legacy of the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin. She was one of the few artists who could say that she was a gospel music star in her own right, an R&B music star in her own right, and a pop music star in her own right. Most artists would love to have one third of that career, but she had those three careers all at one time or at different points in her life. And so she will have an, an immeasurable impact on people because her music was about joy. It had pain, love, loss, um, longing. It reflected life in all its various, I would say, vicissitudes. There was something for everyone in the music of Aretha Franklin. It's that authenticity that really carries through in a voice. And there's often times when you really feel something from a singer, an actor, a performer, whatever it is, you know, for me, I, I, I would get these goosebumps and, you know, you really feel whatever emotion or message they're trying to convey. And Aretha Franklin was that person to a lot of people. Uh, I mean, she won countless awards, 18 Grammy Awards, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, uh, doctorates, honorary doctorates from a host of institutions. She was so accomplished in music and beyond. And like I said, she's just constantly reaching out to the people. But beyond that, in her awards tells you the people that she reached. She was on the cover of Time magazine. She was the first female inductee to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. If you don't know more than two songs of Aretha Franklin, that's something missing in your life. It, it, you're either a Aretha Franklin fan or you're a Aretha Franklin fan in waiting and you just haven't been exposed enough to her music. Yeah. And, and I would I'm willing to bet, you know, everybody knows respect and, and beyond that. But I'm willing to bet there's a lot of people that know her music that don't necessarily knew, know it was her or, you know, she did a lot of covers and things like that. And you just probably never knew really that it was her or that she sang those songs or did anything to change an arrangement of a song and and make it her own. If you listen to shows like The Voice or American Idol or X Factor, any of those shows, and you listen to a, a female vocalist and they do all the runs and, a, and the vocal gymnastics, as I call it, they are living embodiments 
of the legacy of Aretha Franklin. They may not know it, but they're singing in her style, the gospel music style of the mid 20th century. There are untold millions of singers and performers that she has directly and indirectly impacted. And beyond singing, she was a, a prodigy on the piano. And I don't know if a lot of people knew that. I Learned really didn't know that. Self-taught by the age of four. Yeah. I mean, just uh, and growing up in, in her father's church, he was uh, a preacher and, and would also do. I mean, he had hit records of his he sermons. Was, and he was like famous that. in his own respect. Right. Um, Dr. King and Mahalia Jackson, uh, Sam Cooke. Albertina Walker, these were family friends. Jackie Wilson, song Higher and Higher. These are family friends long before Aretha Franklin became world-renowned in her own right. If anyone was destined for greatness, it was Aretha Franklin. But also, she was enveloped by a lot of pain. There was a lot of family drama. Her father was shot. Um, and was in a coma for like five years before he passed. Right. So, But the, all that came out in her music. Not explicitly, but it was implicitly included. Yeah, she was very private. And, you know, we'll get into that a little bit later. I, I want to continue on her legacy. We talked about her legacy on music. What was her legacy with women and civil rights and the black community? Oh, people don't know that there was a time in which Dr. King had run out of money to help pay for the people who were working for him um, as part of the civil rights movement. And Aretha Franklin would have concerts to raise money so Dr. King would be able to pay his staff. She was very much connected to the civil rights movement, but a lot of people don't know women were not allowed to have a specific voice, but that was the way in which she helped. She also sang at Dr. King's funeral. Wow. And, and, and the song respect, which she's so popular for just had so many meanings for a lot of people, for women, like I said, and for those in the black community as well. It, it, it was it demand, multi, it demanded yes. what the song was about. It was what you wanted it to be. Even though a woman was singing it, obviously on the surface, people said it's specifically about women and respect, but you can't divorce that from the era in which it was recorded and what was going on in, in general history. So it meant many things to many people. She went through a lot of different record companies, Columbia, Atlantic, and her success wasn't immediate. You no. know, she had a she grew into the industry. And, and that's one of the things that she said specifically. I liked not having that overnight success. It taught me a lot of things growing up in the industry. And people always said, you know, she never learned how to be pretentious enough to build a false image. Uh, that's why she was so true to herself and in the music. And that's why it comes. It came out. That's one of the things that everybody says about her. She was such a nice genuine person. She was like a family member. If you would meet her, she would greet you and say hello and, and ask to know things about her. When I met her, she was just like that. She was warm. She was inviting, but she was very serious about her music and her performance. If she were to perform, she wanted to make sure the temperature was a certain uh, degree or there wasn't too much air conditioning, which would negatively affect her voice. She was always concerned with how she sounded, but not at the expense of being cruel to people. The queen of soul. Where does that name come from? How did she be ascend to that to that name? You have to remember, she's a, a contemporary, I would say, of James Brown, who was the godfather. And so it was almost like she was running parallel to him. But there was something greater, I would say, about Aretha Franklin, because soul music grew out of what was the, the blues movement of the 50s and 60s. And as soul came along, there was no other person who was even close in a female capacity in terms of soul music from the 70s, where she really hit her stride musically and gained success to the 80s on. There was no one who was ever close in soul music. I mean, it's such a tragedy for the world and such a loss for all of us. 
the lucky thing, the thing that we benefit from is we always have her in her music. We can constantly replay her and remember her for everything that she was great for. Uh, Mo, you specifically got a chance to meet her when you were working for the Grammys. Tell us a little bit about that. Very quickly, I was working for the Grammys in the mid-90s in the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences, and I was running the ticketing function. And if you didn't know, anyone who was nominated for a Grammy, and many times Aretha was nominated, the nominees had to personally come in and pick up their tickets. They did not allow, allow intermediaries to do it. So I'm doing I'm sure the tickets. I'm sure loved that. Yeah, and, and, <laughs> and then Aretha Franklin comes walking through the door. It's like, oh my goodness. It's a, she says, hi, I'm Aretha Franklin. Like you, yeah. like, like you need to introduce her. <laughs> yeah. And she was just as warm and nice. My mother's family is from Detroit. And there's this kind of this like Detroit handshake. When you meet someone from Detroit, you always ask like, what high school did you go to? Did you know about this stop or did you eat here or there? So you have this degree of familiarity. And it was like I was speaking to my own mother. Wow. That's she awesome. She was just as warm as you would ever want. She was inviting. She was kind. And she's unforgettable. Mo Kelly host of the Mo Kelly show on KFI AM 640 in Los Angeles. He's got a new podcast, Nerdorama. Check it out. Thank you so much for sharing your stories and, and, you know, telling us a little bit more about Aretha Franklin. Thank you for having me. Another one of the more interesting stories is the state of Nebraska. They just experienced a series of firsts related to an execution. It was the first execution they had since 1997, the first execution by lethal injection. Prior to that, they used the electric chair and the first death sentence in the country to be carried out with the use of the opioid fentanyl. So we're going to talk to Brent Martin. He's the news director for the Nebraska Radio Network. He's witnessed a bunch of executions in his day. And I had to start off by asking him how many he's witnessed and if it really weighs on his conscience. Previously, I was a journalist in Missouri and actually covered Missouri executions on a regular basis and actually witnessed 13 executions between 1996 and 2005, all by lethal injection, all in Missouri. I have to ask, do these things weigh on you after witnessing these things? Do you think about them in the days after? It might seem odd to your listeners, but no, I do not. I think I have always tried to approach them professionally, and I've tried to be somewhat detached and keep it cubbyhole in that professional part, never really think of them personally, because we're a statewide radio network. We have 40 affiliates throughout the state. We believe that it is part of our solemn responsibility if the state is going to have the ultimate punishment. We need to be there to report on it and to tell the public to be an independent witness, independent eyes, if you will on the execution and report faithfully to the public. So I've always tried to approach it in that manner professionally. Who is Kerry Dean Moore and why was he up for execution? Kerry Dean Moore, he was 21 years old when in August of 1979, he in effect planned and lured two Omaha cab drivers to his residence to kill them and to rob them. He planned it in advance. He made several calls to different cab drivers. He told police when one cabbie came up, he was too young, too much like him, and he didn't think he could kill him. Both Rule Van Ness Jr. and Maynard Hegelin were 47 years old, both shot in the head. There was reports even that at one point, as you said, he was luring cab drivers. His mother was a cab driver and he jumped into her cab at one point and he didn't know what to do. It surprised him. He said, just take me home. And, you know, she dropped him off back at home. And then he went out again, right back into downtown to go look for somebody, supposedly. Well, it's even that he was casing, if you will, trying to 
see how cab drivers would react, what would be the best way of doing it, really macabre stuff. Later in his years, he became a born-again Christian. He said he believed that Jesus did forgive him for the murders. He really did seem remorseful. You know, he said the only thing that pained him really was knowing that the families had to live through all that stuff. And at the end of it also, he wanted to give up all the appeals. He wanted the whole process over. He hated being there in jail. He stated he was guilty. He did not try to cover that at all. He dropped all legal appeals. And there were many people here who believed that he had very strong case to file legal appeals and object to this because of the novel approach, the four drug protocol that hadn't been used anywhere in the United States. The ACLU was trying to, the Nebraska Commission on Public Advocacy wanted to file the appeals, but he just said, no, I don't want any more appeals. I don't want to live on death row anymore. I want to go to my death. One thing he did say, he felt remorse for luring his younger brother, Donald, who participated in the first murder and is now on parole. He said he regretted that. Nebraska has a weird history with the death penalty. I think it was a few That's years ago. That's a good ago. way to put it. Really <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, a few years ago, the legislature voted to abandon it. Mm-hmm. And then the governor at the time raised money to put it back on the ballot. And voters, I think, overwhelmingly supported it. I think it was like 61%, something around there. Well, and if you go back even farther in the history of the Nebraska unicameral, the only unicameral in the country, but the legislature had considered banning the death penalty for years and came very, very close. And I covered the legislature, and it was quite an incredible atmosphere when they considered it in, I, I think it was 2016, And they did barely get the votes together to not only get rid of the death penalty, but to overcome the veto of the governor. The governor vetoed the the bill. And then, as you said, Governor Pete Ricketts did, in part, fund the initiative petition that placed it on the November ballot in 2016. And Nebraska voters did overwhelmingly approve putting capital punishment back on the books. Now on to the use of the fentanyl, the first time this has been done in any execution. Right off the bat, in your experience witnessing the execution, did it work effectively? It seemed to. From all the aspects that we could see, it seemed to. These took much longer than I am used to for lethal injection, and states have had trouble finding the sodium thiopental, which they used to use in the traditional three-drug protocol. So they went to this first diazepam, which is mainly Valium, and then fentanyl citrate to try to mimic what sodium thiopental did prior. And it seemed to, because we were able to observe not only his body going still, but the acting warden made a consciousness check. He did his eyelids, took a pen light, put it in his eyes to see if he was unconscious before the final two lethal drugs were injected into him. So from our observation, what I've tried to say is it appeared to go as the corrections officials intended it to go. The first two drugs, as you said, render them unconscious. The next two are the ones that actually stop the life. One to stop the breathing. The next is to stop the heart from beating again. As you said, Scott Frakes, the director of Nebraska's Department of Correctional Services, they said that he had to contact at least 40 suppliers, half a dozen other states seeking drugs for this to happen. They've been in such short supply across the states. That's why they fell on the fentanyl for this one. As we know, fentanyl has been widely cited in the opioid epidemic. It's kind of the reason why a lot of people are overdosing and things like that. They're running out of other options, and they've fallen on this drug that's been so popularized in the opioid epidemic. 
states that do have lethal injection are having trouble finding the drugs that they used to rely on for lethal injection. And they've come up with these, as you said, a novel approach. I think Nevada was the first state to propose this type. Now, I'm, You're right. It was gonna, okay. They were going to use it for an inmate named Scott Dozier, but right. another it, drug company filed a suit and they stopped it because of the other company that didn't glad, want their drug used. Yeah, glad you could back me up on that because <laughs> I, I Nevada proposed it, but then the right. courts blocked it. And because Moore did not offer a legal challenge, really the courts never got involved in, in looking at this four drug protocol and determining whether this should be used. So I interviewed a Nebraska College of Law professor who knows about lethal injection, those sort of things. He said this, this execution will go on with many questions left unanswered. I can't imagine, you know, with the bad choice of words, but the quote unquote success of this method, this four drug cocktail here, it might lead it to be used in a lot of other states. It's the drug companies that are getting involved, really trying to not have them be used in these executions. A lot of the companies are saying, you know, our drugs are made for life-saving purposes, not for this purpose specifically. Right. And it was also interesting. I know that the courts, the federal courts, were critical of one of the drug companies saying that you're, you're coming late to this. And if you really objected to this, you should have filed it prior. Also, there are some concerns that the Department of Correctional Services here in Nebraska has not been as forthright with how it obtained these drugs. There were some lawsuits to try to get them to disclose how they got the drugs, which would probably help us to understand more about their effectiveness and how they were used, this sort of thing. But those also never really got to the courts in time. Right. And that, that was kind of a similar case in, uh, we, we referenced the Las Vegas, the Nevada case with Scott Dozier there. They were saying that the state had illegally obtained those drugs. So yeah, these drug companies really want to know how everybody's getting it so that it's on the up and up. Right. And I think the thing with Nebraska, I think Nebraska said we didn't listen, we didn't obtain them illegally. They might have not completely been forthright with how they were going to use them, but they, they obtained them legally. And I think that was the court's stance is they were obtained legally. Whether you as a drug company believe that they misrepresented how they were going to use it is between you and your customer, but it's not a legal issue. In the end, they reported that he mouthed I love you to some of the family members. Was there anything, other things in parting that he, that he said or did? He mouthed some other words that none of us could really decipher. We couldn't couldn't tell what it was. I mean, it's pretty easy to see I love you. I think anybody can read those lips. But some of the other things, and at one point, I may be stretching it a bit, but it looked like he turned to the ceiling, and it, it appeared, his eyes to the ceiling, and it appeared that maybe he was saying a prayer. Uh, but that's his speculation. But I can't imagine, because he was looking straight at the ceiling, and he was mouthing some words, so perhaps he was making a uh, prayer and then he turned back uh, to his witnesses and mouthed some words that we could not distinguish. Brent Martin, news director for the Nebraska Radio Network. Thank you very much for joining us. You are welcome. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.